1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
0: Hello, world. This is the Global Media and Communication podcast series. I am Aswin Punathambekar, the director of the Center for Advanced Research in Global Communication. This is Jing Wang, the senior research manager at CARG. Our podcast is part of a multimodal project powered by CARG, here at the Annenberg School for Communication at the University of Pennsylvania. At CARG, we produce and promote critical, interdisciplinary, and multimodal research on global media and communication. We aim to bridge academic scholarship and public life, bringing the very best scholarship to bear on enduring global questions and pressing contemporary
1: issues. Welcome to the Global Media and Communications Podcast. I am Ignatius Suglo, a postdoctoral fellow at the Center for Advanced Research in Global Communication, and your host for today. Joining us today is Thomas Chen, an assistant professor at Lehigh University and the author of the book Made in Censorship The Tiananmen Movement in Chinese Literature and Film. Welcome, Thomas. Thank you so much for having me, Ignatius. Yeah, it's a pleasure to um, have you today, and thank you for making the time. Um, so, before we, you know, continue, can you just begin by telling us a little bit more about yourself and your research interests?
0: Sure. Uh, I am currently an assistant professor of Chinese at Lehigh University. Uh, my story, I guess, begins in in Beijing, where I was born. Uh, I came to the U.S. when I was seven and a half. Uh, my parents and I moved quite a bit between the states of Pennsylvania and California. Um, uh, uh, eventually, I did my undergrad at Cornell. Uh, after graduation, I worked for a few years, including as a reporter. And then in 2009, I started a Ph.D. at UCLA. And after that was completed, I came to Lehigh, where I teach and write on modern Chinese literature and film.
1: Oh, that's great! Um, so, what sparked your interest in the Tiananmen movement, um, particularly, and how did this project come about? I mean, what's what was your journey leading onto this project? Thanks
0: for that question. I didn't settle on Tiananmen uh, in the beginning. It was somewhat of a circuitous journey. Very early on in my Ph.D. tenure, I was uh, drawn to the subject of censorship, and it was only later on that I realized why. It's because of my experience as a reporter. So after graduating from college, I worked as a police reporter at a local newspaper in, of all places, Lansdale, Pennsylvania, and that was certainly an exciting job for, for a young person, right, uh, right out of college to be on the police beat, to, to cover breaking news. But it was also exhausting, and, and I quickly burned out. Right before I started my Ph.D. at UCLA, I actually interned, you could call it interning, you could call it being a, a part-time correspondent for two uh, you know, media companies in China. The first is 21st Century Business Herald 21世纪经济报道. I worked there for a few months. And then I worked for the English service of China Radio International, CRI. It was those experiences on hindsight that made me interested and perplexed about the, the complex workings of censorship. Uh, of course, when I first started grad school, it was such a large topic, right? You, you start with Plato and the Republic and, and uh, what is implied about censorship uh, there, but uh, only after quite a few years did I hone in on the subject matter I eventually arrived at.
1: Nice. Um, so before we go into, you know, the meat of, you know, the book and the nitty-gritties of it, um, what is the main argument or what do you hope that people who read this book take away from it? Sure. The
0: main argument is simply that censorship needs to be viewed as a productive, formulative force in addition to a repressive Subtractive one. So when we think about censorship, we generally think of something that deletes, cuts out, bans. But what I want to emphasize with my book project is that it's also very shaping of narratives, of the stories that we tell. So it's not only leaving certain voices unheard or unspoken, uh, silencing. certain voices, but broadcasting and promulgating authoritative or official discourses. So there's a duality I wanted to tease out with my book.
1: Yeah, no, that's great. And, um, you know, talking about your own work as a reporter early on um, also kind of (laughs) shines a bit more light on um, some things that I was thinking about. Um, And, you know, the Tiananmen movement and its aftermath have been— Viewed as, or It is a lot of things, right, um, to different people in different places. Um, and you engage with it as a media event, at least from my understanding, right? And um, you provide a deeply contextualized media history of the movement and its ap- aftermath. And, um, you know, so I guess my question is, what informed your choice of literature and film um, as a way of looking at um the Tiananmen movement? Thanks for this question,
0: Ignatius. Uh, there, there's several ways I, I arrived at Tiananmen. First and foremost is on, on the subject of literature and film, it's, those are my fields. Uh, those are my passions. Uh, I love reading, uh, especially works of literature. I love watching films. So it was natural for me to hone in on these media for, for this project. And related to the, the subject of Tiananmen, it's often believed uh, in, you know, in the Western Hemisphere that Tiananmen is a, a strictly a blink uh, in the Chinese discursive world, that it cannot be talked about, that, that there's an utter silence on it. But looking through looking at various works of literature and audiovisual production, whether that be TV programs or, or, or films, we see that actually it does, the event continues to live on in artistic afterlives. There are many artists, writers who continually engage and return to that central event for a variety of purposes. So its life, even within China, is very much vibrant and contested and that's something that I wanted to reveal with the book.
1: Yeah, and so there is a whole range of um media forms, right? Um from literature through you had novels, um film, documentaries, um one may say. Um and so what is the thinking what was the thinking behind the selection process of what to what do you analyze specifically?
0: My you could say my principal Criterion in the selection of the materials and what I wanted to start the book with is to bring in government materials. I think these are materials that are seldom looked at in scholarship across the board, right. uh, especially in literature and, and film studies. Uh, they are completely discounted, uh, brushed aside because they are just low-grade propaganda, right? But in my view, they form a major part of the discursive context. There was massive output in literary and audiovisual materials in the immediate aftermath of June 4th by the government at all levels and in many different geographic locations. Centered on Beijing, to be sure, but you have pamphlets and books produced in Citron, where Hubei, all over the map, essentially. And this kind of campaign, and it is really a media campaign in the news, in publishing, in, on radio, and television, uh, this campaign needs to be studied and, and really delved into to, Show that instead of the the instead of equating 10 with silence, and in in the immediate aftermath, where of, of course during the protests themselves, there was an inundation of words uh, on the subject coming from the government. They uh, they wanted to very much spread and and promote its version of the events. Uh, who were the the good guys? Who were the bad guys? Uh, who were the actual heroes? Uh, who, what were the the machinations uh, behind the, the rise of, of these protests? So uh, that's why my first chapter uh, really wanted to explore this underlooked-at facet of uh, coverage.
1: Yeah, and you touched on silence, right? Um, and I found it very generative that you... You know, ask us the readers to look beyond the, or to break away from binary um, oppositions of looking at, you know, silence as the um, opposite of speaking, right? And you write that silencing is not the opposite of speaking up, but working in tandem um, with with speaking, right? And so, just uh, what since we are on the subject, right? I want you to just touch on the. Productivity of silences, but also of absences, right?
0: Um, Thank you so much for this question. And we see it, we see the similar dynamic at play in recent protests uh, in China with people holding up blank sheets of paper, uh, uh, the so-called A4 protests, right? So there is something productive uh, about blankness. Blankness in these kinds of contexts signal openness, signal possibility, and in certain situations, it's this openness, blankness, and possibility that constitute, for the regime, a threat. So here, silence, you could say, a form of silence, is performed by residents, by the people, to suggest voices that have been curtailed. Uh, so their, their demonstrative display of blank blankness uh, speaks louder than you could say speaks louder than than words even. And on the subject of silencing, we can look at it in a different light, too. Again, returning to the immediate aftermath of June 4th, you have such a torrent of government speech, right? And this government speech also wants to see itself repeated and regurgitated. So in workplace discussions and and school events, students and workers oftentimes had to account for their actions during uh, the protest. So they had to give an account of themselves to own up to their failings or their mistakes and then pronounce their conversion into the the righteous uh, stance, right? So in those moments, to be silent, to not to regurgitate and repeat the official narrative is also a form of protest. So not only should we valorize speech, but in particular situations, silence too is bravery.
1: Right. And that got me thinking about the silence of the government as well. Um, so um, the director of Summer Palace, um, lawyer, I believe, um, when he was interviewed about you know, how some parts of his work were was deleted, um, he remarks that nobody in the government has said that tenement movement cannot be filmed. So how does that silence of, you know, government play into all these other types of silences? Um, is it also a strategy for the regime to, you know, have some form of control.
0: <laughs> uh, uh, that's a wonderful perspective, and it really relates to the the, the fuzzy borders of the censorship regime. Uh, it very much operates by unwritten rules, right? People uh, by, by what people take for granted, what are supposed to be off limits, and it's because of the uh, you could say the the daring actions of certain writers and filmmakers who, by making particular films or writing a particular work, they challenge and, you could say, even confirm or affirm the place, the the existence of these boundaries, right? If nobody speaks out, then we assume that Maybe there is no restriction to begin with, right? But when, they, when there is conflict, when there is an incident, right, uh, when a particular key word where, where, where such a matter infringes upon those sensitive borders, then those borders themselves are laid bare, are revealed that they, they do exist. And by pointing out those borders, you are also not only demarcating the boundaries or the the terrain of censorship, but you also help to to lay it bare so that others who come after you can push against those boundaries and even expand upon those boundaries or overstep even more knowingly those boundaries.
1: Yeah, um, and so about in relation to the fuzziness, right, of all this, um, I mean, I would just also just like you to. Reflect a bit upon the non-staticness of what is considered sensitive within this context, right? Um, where um, some in some part of the book you talk about, you know, one thing that is that receives approval and is considered okay and fine, um, and in another time and space is considered, you know, not appropriate by the regime. And I think that was in relation to um, the work, flutter flag of the republic. Yes,
0: and we see a a similar dynamic play out recently. I just read a New York Times article on how scientific articles on COVID that were initially published by Chinese scientists were later retracted, withdrawn because of government pressure. So these are findings, scientific findings that you know, at a certain time, war allowed, right? They entered the, uh, the, the realm of public knowledge that that is uh, partaken by, by the international community. But at a later point, certain officials or, or certain agencies in the government deemed these scientific findings to be too revealing or perhaps even incriminatory, right, as to the location and the time of when the virus emerged or, or was found out uh, in Wuhan. So what was allowed at one point later became off-limits and, and had to be taken out of circulation. And this is, of course, seen in relation to the Tiananmen protests too, uh, in the government documentary that you pointed out what was this documentary was made by the People's Liberation Army, so it had the, the uh, utmost sanction, right? But over the years, because the audiovisual medium itself is so unruly, filled with images that can be used for a variety of purposes, right? It too became too provocative. It too had to be cut or edited in a way that uh, certain elements could no longer be seen. So uh, we really do see a temporal dimension to uh, the strictures of censorship.
1: And you you touched on the subject of COVID, which you talk about in your conclusion as well. Um, And, you know, thinking about Zheng Nang Liang, um, positive energy, right, as um, a mobilizing discourse, right, by the the regime in talking about um, um, COVID. And this also reminded me of the use of the same, you know, term in other spaces, um, like in my wonderful colleague Ting Wang's work on um, Hui Muslims, where um, on the discourse of Mu Hei, um Zheng Liang is also mobilized, right? Um, so this... Is in the official discourse, but how does, you know, these official discourses, how is it also co-opted in other spaces um, of spaces of resistance or spaces of support for, you know, the government? And, I mean, it, that just came to mind.
0: Positive energy is definitely uh, an instance of the productive dimension of censorship. It's, it's on the face of it, right? It's not removing anything. It's not uh, uh, outlawing anything. It's about the promotion of positive messages, uh, a, a greater spirit of whether it's camaraderie or ethnic harmony, right? But we could also view this as a form of censorship if we understand censorship as both destructive and Formative. Zhong liang is seemingly a very innocent idea. I like to think of myself as an optimistic person, so I, if I had to pick, I, I would say I am, quote-unquote, filled with positive energy too. But it's always this mobilization, uh, a campaignization, if you will, uh, of a loud form of speech that make it very suspicious. So on the on the, behind the promotion of positive energy, there is at the same time, of course, the the marginalization and, and the removal of energy that doesn't fit uh, where the the the
1: government wants it to go. Yeah, the sanctioned energy. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, and um, that also. Um, speaks to the collaborativeness, right, of um, censorship, but also propaganda um, in these, you know, um, in these, in these um, spaces. And I just wanted you to touch on that because you push um, forward the term workshop, right, um, as a way of thinking about how um, censorship, but also propaganda is co-created in a collaborative, you know, um, um, environment of, Parties that are sometimes even seemingly um, hold opposing views. Uh, nowadays, we
0: tend to think everything is AI-generated, where everything depends on algorithms. But what I hope to show with the concept of the workshop that is that there is still so much uh, human work, human labor done in the realm of censorship. Uh, whether that's in the work of counter censorship or uh, monitors officials who still, in this age of you know uh, algorithms, still manually, so to speak, uh, uh, enforce boundaries on, on speech, and the idea of workshop uh, is is conducive to thinking of censorship in a collaborative. Manner, as you say, a work a workshop is some something that multiple people, a lot of people participate in, and there is a back and forth to this creation, to this production. It's not one person making everything happen, but even people learning from each other, helping quote unquote each other uh, to make things. And here I'm talking about not just. Resisters, resistors, right? Not just the intellectuals, writers, and artists who learn from each other, who support each other in resisting censorship, but censors themselves, policies themselves are refined and uh, are, they, they too learn from what's out there. So there is a mutual education uh, at work here. You could think of it as a cat and mouse game, but at the same time, I think it's more instructive to think of it as mutual instruction almost, where uh, the sensors too are are learning the various new things that are being developed and they're incorporating new strategies into how they approach uh, discourse discursive management. So uh, it is very much mutually implicated and... I want to emphasize the productive side with the concept of workshop.
1: Yeah, the workshop. And so, um, will, can we consider the audiences or intended audiences as also an integral part of this workshop? Um, and if so, um, would the intended audiences of what is considered subversive um, production shape, or inform or influence um, these productions, both in terms of the narratives, um, but also in choice of form or choice of platform, you know, among others.
0: Absolutely, and of course, the the government seeks to paint certain writers and filmmakers, artists, as writing, targeting a foreign audience, right? They want to paint these artists as curing Western favor, that they are completely colonizing themselves. They are serving these imperialist powers, right? Of course, the, the actual dynamic behind the scenes is they prevent these local intellectuals, writers, filmmakers from having that domestic audience by shutting the gates on them and really forcing them to have their works seen and, and, and read to force them to turn to other venues, other channels and platforms. Uh, so we need to be cognizant of that. Uh, these, these artists would love to have a, a, a domestic readership and viewership, would love to have their films screened and exhibited, uh, their their works discussed openly, uh, whether in the classroom or in salons, right? But they have to be diverted elsewhere. Uh, but such as the porousness of of borders that you know these outside conversations do make their way in into China as well. So uh, there is. Feedback. There is a, a mechanism where uh, more diverse productions are seen by Chinese readers and, and uh, spectators.
1: I mean, and in terms of uh, competing narratives, um, also linked to you know um, um, what you were just talking about right now, um, the issue of the Tank Man. Right. I think that's a very iconic one for. Um, people outside of china right but um i think you do engage with the multiple narratives surrounding the tank man and the multiple symbolisms of that um so yeah, i don't know if you could you know just touch a bit more on that um, sure ignatius right? you know the tank man
0: is the the most reductive uh symbol out there right yeah. and and People use it as a shorthand for for quite a few things. Uh, oftentimes, it is brought up by by journalists to as a as a symbol of censorship itself. They, you know, multiple people have done this. They they go to Chinese campuses, university campuses, and they interview students and they show them that, that Tank Man picture. Do you recognize it? Do you know where? Or you know. Where is this? When When? When was this taken? And more often than not, of course, uh, the answer is no, we, we, we don't recognize this. We have no idea what this is about. And that's just simply taking that face value. Uh, it's, it's interpreted as a sign that, yes, the regime has successfully erased Tiananmen from uh, uh, public discourse, the, the young generation whether it's right now or the future, we'll have no idea uh, what this event was all about. And it points to the, 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 yeah, the success of this campaign of amnesia, right? But what is not taken into consideration is how these students may not want to avow knowledge of this picture, right? Uh, if I were a Chinese university student, and a, a, a journalist, uh, 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 you know, suddenly asks me about this. I'm not going to show my hand, uh, right? Uh, even if I'm actually part of a a, a group of of activists. <laughs> so, I what I want to do in, in my book, especially in the early chapters, is to reveal the uh, the complexity of uh, that image and that that moment too, and to show how the government. Uh, in the immediate aftermath, used it for its own purposes, as a symbol of the forbearance of the father, right? That the tank not uh, running over the student, trying to swerve, trying to get out of the way, and this this brazen radical that keeps getting it in, in in the way of the tank and keeps on provoking our, our kind soldiers, our, our benevolent soldiers. So the the. That moment can be put to better use to illustrate how complex images can be, how different resonances can be drawn uh, out of them and be put to different use. But, of course, what's interesting about uh, that clip as seen on Chinese television, right, as seen on Chinese, central Chinese uh, TV, is that later it became too provocative, even for the the, the official narrative, uh, it too had to had to disappear, had to be you know uh, scrubbed from from the, uh, the the Chinese sphere.
1: Yeah, um, on the recasting of narratives, um, and which also feeds into you know a broader um, issue of um, political participation as well in many of the. Uh, works that you analyze, and you say this explicitly, that um, political participation is seemingly replaced with sexual and commercial consumption. Um, And that is reflected in some ways in some of the um, works that you, the films and and literature that you analyze. And, um, yeah, I was just wondering if you could reflect on that and um, also in terms of how it fits into the broader rise of consumerism in the aftermath of Tiananmen in the 90s, in the late 80s and 90s.
0: Sure, Ignatius. You see this most uh, evidently in the film Summer Palace. And in uh, for the movie Summer Palace, it's often been read as a very depoliticized treatment of the protests. uh, That the students, the college students are shown to be uh, simply dabbling in protest, right? What they really care about is having sex with one another, having a good time, going to parties, and they are not really politically committed. So in such a reading, this film actually supports the government narrative that these students are just immature. They didn't know what they were doing. Uh, They had their washed momentarily, right, by the fervent uh, uh, of the times. But because of the crackdown, uh, we set China on the, the better path, the, the, the good path, uh, taming the, these uh, uh, hedonistic energies. My chapter, on the other hand, seeks to show that it's because of the violence because of the crackdown, and you hear the bullets in that film, that the political way of life is shut down, and it is the, the hedonism the, 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 that's allowed to run more rampant. Uh, if you are uh, buying things... If you are uh, having sex, no problem. That that we uh, we we have no no issues with that, as long as you don't engage in in street protests, uh, and as long as you don't challenge authority, right? So there there, are, there is a different way of looking at the film Summer Palace that resuscitates its energies. Uh, so here we could think of the the libidinal energies of the students as something emancipatory as something revolutionary uh, that had to be tamed uh, uh, and, and with violence with with uh, gunfire uh, and then we have the the 1990s depoliticization where everything becomes money mm. uh, looking forward and looking at money too
1: yeah I like how you know the polysemic readings of this um, 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 this phrase, right? You know, Wang Tien and Wang Tien. Um, that that was very interesting. Yeah, that was an interesting one, and um, in all these works as well. I mean, I found that um, women played a major role in terms of the characters that were being portrayed, right? Um, and so I was just wondering if that has anything to do with and how that fits into the broader, you know, Maoist rhetoric of, you know, female empowerment, women equality, and all of that. Because, I mean, in most of them, that was a trend that I could I could see, which was great. Sure. And what
0: really jumps out to me at the moment about about this, on this topic, is in these... In those uh, works of government propaganda, uh, it is male-dominated. We see uh, uh, masculinization or militarization of social life, as depicted in in these pamphlets and these works of reportage. Soldiers, uh, uh, once again, are, are lionized. They become martyrs, right? And it's their sacrifice that is supposed to wake up the entire populace. What is the role of women in such portrayals? Very much a subservient one of serving men, whether it's mothers at home uh, uh, who who, uh, generously send their, their, their sons to the front lines, right? were wives and fiancés and girlfriends who then mourn the death of these heroic figures, and towards the end of these you know many pieces, many such pieces, uh, we have descriptions of their sisters or their uh, girlfriends taking up the gun, uh, being bestowed the the, the gun of the army, right, and to continue the cause left behind by their dead brothers or their uh, dead spouses, dead boyfriends. And in these portrayals, women function not in their own identity or sexuality. They are very much part of, you could say, a, a, a patriarchal conveyor belt even, just being conveyed into uh, the system, the machine, as one more cog that is supposed to uh, uh, only behave patriotically, right? So uh, on the surface, you could say that it is a kind of equality, women joining the the, the military, right? But it's really not activating their themselves their, 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 their true selves yeah, and
1: how does that compare so the government productions how does that compare with um, productions that were considered subversive
0: Yes, so in in these other works, these women are allowed their own voices right in not in a government documentary but in uh, this will be a underground documentary. I graduated, for instance. Uh, you have women interviewed, speaking to the camera in their own voices, telling the audience you know what they saw, what they witnessed, and also giving their views on a variety of subjects, so that their beings are not instrumentalized; they're not reduced to serving a particular larger goal or a larger function, uh, they are allowed to talk about something as varied as study abroad or their sex lives uh, or how do they see their future, right? Uh, their full humanity is allowed to come, in, come into being uh, rather than uh, being forced, being, being ta- having their, their stories tailored to serve a single message.
1: Yeah, no, that's, and I just want to bring us back to, you know, the issue of um, form and platform that we talked about a bit earlier on. And so I was just thinking with the increasing access um, to the internet in the 1990s, censorship moved online, right, gradually. And um, the cyberspace here is treated with logics of geopolitical space. Right. And with the aim of achieving internet sovereignty in, in China, and so I'm um, just beyond the over-determined discussions on the Great Firewall of China. Um, how was the internet right in the in the nineties? How did it shape um, censorship, if at all? You know, uh, the the term internet sovereignty
0: is a really interesting one. Uh, On the one hand, it seems to lend a lot of credence to Chinese government policy. Just like how sovereignty is something that so many nations uh, strive for, right? So many nations that uh, were the victims of imperialism and colonialism, they fought for sovereignty. And and so therefore sovereignty is always a good thing. And when it applies to internet, it's it's understandable too, right? So that's that's, that's uh, the uh what what the term wants uh, uh believers to, to to think. But then when you actually look at the practices of the the Chinese censorship regime, it's definitely not one of sovereignty. Uh, they do want to maintain sovereignty when it comes to its own territory, right? But on an on a, on a international scale, it's very much an extraterritorial agenda that they, they're pushing. So sovereignty and self-determination on the one hand, but actually... Violating sovereignty, violating internet sovereignty, uh, uh, seeking to influence global discourse uh, uh, on the other. Whether it's online, uh, uh, with TV, uh, other forms of media, uh, censorship itself, it's founded on sovereignty, founded on its rules and regulations and laws. But at the same time, there's always this extraterritorial ambition to it that seeks to expand and conquer new territories, that seeks to replicate its regime elsewhere in other parts of the world to to grant itself legitimacy.
1: Yeah, that's great. And so, I mean, I must say though that the prose is beautifully written, I mean, um, and captivating. When I was reading the book, I mean, I just couldn't put it down at multiple points in time, right? And so, also, there is this, the issue of, you know, weaving in very different types of material, like literature, film, documentaries, into one coherent narrative, which you do beautifully. Um, and what I'm just wondering is, and this is something that I do in my own work and that I am thinking about, um, is that what does looking across different forms or different types of material offer that? looking at one kind doesn't i mean you could have just focused on literature right or just on film or on documentaries so
0: in our training we're always uh taught to to be be medium specific and obviously for for good reason and studies that cross these different forms are always looked a little Uh, suspiciously at, right? Uh, uh, You know, uh, can one thing that applies to one medium really apply to another medium? So what I try to do with my book is to show two forces, uh, both forces at play. Uh, There there are things that cut across uh, different media, different forms. Uh, For instance, rules and... Uh, regulations uh, that do apply no matter uh, what the media. But then in the study, also attending to specificities and peculiarities of form. I'll give you one instance. In the aftermath of Tiananmen, the government produced a lot more literature, textbooks, pamphlets, things of that nature, so much more than audiovisual productions, uh, videos, films. And it's because of the inherently multiplicity or the inherent multivocality of the audio image, uh, uh, both sound and pictures. Uh, Those things are much harder to tame and restrict and put to singular use. Than, than than words right, and and so therefore, uh, that is curtailed uh, in this campaign today. If you go on Baidu and you search for sensitive terms, uh, whether it's tenement or or some uh, other other terms, you will always get more textual links than image choices. So. Uh, Images are are do do, uh, come in for for harsher treatment, and so I want to preserve uh, the the difference uh, across these various media, right? But also sh- showing, trying to show larger forces that uh, reverberate and, and cross cut them as well.
1: Yeah, no, I found looking beyond and between these um, forms to be very generative, and um, you talk about your personal experiences with censorship in, in the book, right? And I would just love you to elaborate a little more on that. Um. I think for me, the most important thing
0: in writing this book, one of the most important things is to be always self-cognizant and to be self-reflexive about my practice. And this book... Even though it's published in the U.S., I'm a scholar working in the U.S. It's still shaped by censorship, not in the expected sense of uh, my visa being restricted, or were you know my, uh, materials that I want to take out of China getting stopped at the border. Not, not things uh, like that, but. In in at least these ways. In the choice of subject matter to begin with. We would think that in the US we enjoy complete academic freedom, and we do to a huge extent. Uh, an extent that you know you, you do not find in, in a lot of other places. Nevertheless, there are influences exerted by one's own Advisors, uh, and with, of course, the best of intentions, right? Uh, advisors who tell their students, oh, this is a, definitely a touchy subject. For you as a graduate student, maybe it's not the right idea. Maybe after tenure, uh, then you can do this. Because if you embark on something like this right now, people are going to be, afraid of you your colleagues in China are going to be afraid of you Uh, they are will be even if they love what you're doing they'll be afraid to openly work with you collaborate with you invite you over Uh, uh, so a lot of opportunities are lost right from the get-go so there are these considerations right that for a student to hear would tend to steer them away from these uh, sensitive domains into ones that are less political, right? And that too is a subtle form of, of censorship in a way. It's a not understood strictly and a negative restrictive sense of, okay, since the tenement off-limits, but also in terms of shaping research agendas uh, uh, that otherwise would have more directions to go in, right? So uh, uh, that's one instance. And there are also instances of me uh, publishing work from this book in China and getting particular passages uh, you know uh, struck out and, and you know working with the translator and the editor to to uh, have a, a certain version be acceptable. Uh, uh, so in these back and forths, I, I didn't want to leave them outside of the book. I wanted them to bring them into the book as part of the larger consideration. Uh, this is what happens uh, uh, when, we write, and engage, and, and deal with censorship. It's never just an external object that we study, that we can remain distant from, but it filters into our very practice and it influences our intellectual formation.
1: Uh, and... Um as we draw towards the end of, you know, our conversation, I would like to just bring us back to the cover of the book, which I found very brilliantly captivates the main, you know, argument that you make in the book, right? Um, so we have the redacted words um, and the re-inscribing of, um, of, of the words on the cover of the book. I mean, can you just talk about that?
0: I'm glad you, you like it, uh, Ignatius. Uh, this cover has grown on me ov- over time. Uh, I, uh, I, I'm certainly uh, appreciative of, of the design of this cover. It wasn't my first choice. My first choice was, and of course, I'm no graphic designer, nor am I in marketing, so uh, uh, I cannot make the final call in this area. But what I had conceived uh, beforehand was... Having, uh, like like a newspaper, uh, a print, uh, completely covering the, the the cover of the book, right, and with all nearly all of the words blacked out with 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 you know say black marker, but only the words made in censorship, the Tiananmen movement and Chinese literature and film uh, left. So these words would be. Uh, uh, visible in different places, so it's you know somebody using what's already available to to create the uh, the 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 title of the book. But uh, you know the 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 team at Columbia decided you know this this is not uh, very very sellable or <laughs> uh, very uh, very striking uh, on the on the book stand. So this this was agreed upon, and I it, it has grown on me. Uh, over time, sure. It, it does, uh, does capture uh, some of the central themes of
1: the book. Yes, I mean, I, I really like it. And so what should we expect from you next after this book? I am
0: working on something new. I'm not at a stage where I can share it publicly yet. Right. But I will say that, you know, as scholars, we are always drawn in at least two directions. On the one hand, you know, in in the aftermath of of publishing a book, uh, there there is a part of you that wants to keep on tilling this field, right? There's there are other things that I do want to write about censorship that I didn't get to, and, and other avenues I want to explore in, uh, in relation to this, and I will pursue that. But the other force is to do something completely new, completely different, and to expand uh, uh, what you're area of expertise is. And for my second book project, that's what I'll be trying to do. Uh, something that really is challenging, something that takes me out of my comfort zone. And uh, ultimately that's that's why we aim for for uh, uh, mundane things like tenure, right? So that we, uh, uh, after we, you know, we have it, we can be even bolder in The intellectual choices that we make and that's what i hope to be engaged with for for the years to come
1: yeah and i really look forward to you know seeing what else comes out of it because you know as scholars as well um finishing a work offers as many answers as it does questions right for um going on to different directions as well um, Tom, thank you very much um, for making the time and for having this conversation with us. Uh, I'm really, really grateful. And um, thank you all for listening.
0: Thank you, Ignatius. It was a wonderful conversation. Yeah, thank, you. thank you for listening to our Global Media and Communication podcast. If you have any questions, please feel free to reach out to our email, cargc at or follow us on Twitter. Until next time...